the most important question that you will ever ask yourself is the question that was asked almost 2,000 years ago by Pontius Pilate. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, and the Jewish leaders were calling for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus, Pilate asked the profound question, What then shall I do with Jesus? What then shall I do with Jesus? That is the question that faces every man and every woman and every young person in existence. What shall I do with Jesus? For some people, that is a haunting question. They know what they should do with Jesus, but for whatever reason, they don't want to do the right thing. Maybe they are afraid that it will cost them popularity. Maybe they are afraid that it will cost them financially. Maybe they are afraid that it will cost them their position. Whatever the reason, there are those who know what they should do with Jesus, but they aren't willing to do it. They know they should embrace Him and yield their lives to Him and follow Him, but like Pontius Pilate, they aren't willing to do it. For them, it's a haunting question when they ask, what shall I do with Jesus? Let's turn together to Mark chapter 15 this morning as we resume Resume our series through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. Mark tells us, Immediately in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they cried out all the more, crucify him. This was one of the darkest moments in all of human history. It ranks up there with the betrayal by Judas and the actual crucifixion that is to follow. It is here that the sinless, spotless Son of God was condemned to be crucified. The only man who has never done anything wrong was subjected to the worst case of judicial injustice ever to take place. The Jewish leaders railroaded Pilate into a decision that, in a sense, he didn't want to make when he succumbed to the pressure to hand Jesus over to be crucified. There are actually two trials recorded here in the verses that we just read, although Mark's account doesn't make that clear. The other Gospels, as you probably know, fill in the other specifics, and this is the way it is whenever you're consulting a story in the Gospel records. Rarely does one Gospel writer give the entire story or all the details. Each writer has his own unique purpose and his own goal, and so he includes or excludes whatever details he sees fit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, let me emphasize, there are actually two trials recorded here, although Mark's account doesn't make that clear. Jesus had two trials before Pilate, because after the first hearing, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod to be tried. When Herod couldn't figure out what to do with Jesus, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate for this final trial. The appearance before Herod probably took place between verses 5 and 6 of this account that we just read. Mark chooses to skip right over that and take the two trials before Pilate and just basically conflate them together into one account. As we move into this 15th chapter, we are actually in the middle of a series of events that began back in chapter 14, verse 46. That is when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night. When Jesus was arrested by the temple guards and the mob that accompanied them, he was first taken to Annas, who was the former high priest and the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Mark doesn't mention anything about that bogus trial. Instead, Mark mentions the next mock trial, which was before the current high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy and sent his case to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 1 of chapter 15. Mark tells us, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. This verse is an allusion to the third religious trial that Jesus had to endure. Mark doesn't really give a lot of detail about this trial, but Luke gives us much more. Now remember, the first trial was before Annas. 
the second before Caiaphas, and the third trial was the one before the entire Sanhedrin. None of them were attempts at justice. The Sanhedrin was composed of scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and elders of the people. It numbered 71 members, and it was presided over by the high priest. This verse tells us that they waited until morning to have their consultation, probably to give the impression that they were following their rules of justice that stated criminal trials could not be held at night. If that's what they were doing, then it was nothing more than sickening tokenism. They weren't really interested in justice. They just wanted to get rid of Jesus once and for all. They not only broke the rule that stated criminal trials could not be held at night, they also broke their own law that stated criminal cases could not be transacted during the Passover season at all. Period. Furthermore, only if the verdict was not guilty could the case be finished on the day it was begun. Still further, in any trial, the process began by the laying before the court of all the evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence for his guilt was adduced. Not only that, no person on trial could either be asked or compelled to answer any question that would incriminate him. These were the Sanhedrin's own laws, and it is abundantly clear that in their eagerness to get rid of Jesus, they broke all their own rules, all their own guidelines. The Jewish leaders had reached such a peak of hatred for Jesus that any and all means were acceptable in their minds to get rid of him. And they not only wanted to get rid of him, they wanted to get rid of him in a humiliating way. They wanted him to be crucified, which was humiliating from a social standpoint and from a religious or spiritual standpoint. It was humiliating from a religious or spiritual standpoint because Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And it was humiliating from a social standpoint because it was the cruelest, most humiliating, shaming means of execution used by the Romans. And that's where the problem came in for the Jewish leaders. They weren't allowed to crucify anyone. The Roman government did not allow them to do so. Therefore, the Jewish leaders knew that they had to somehow manipulate the Roman governor Pilate to condemn Jesus. That's what they were planning to do. As verse 1 tells us, they delivered Jesus to Pilate. Now, just as Jesus had endured three religious trials before the Jewish leadership, so also he would undergo three secular or judicial or civil trials before the Roman leadership. The first trial was before Pontius Pilate. Then Jesus was sent to Herod for another hearing, and then back to Pilate 
for the final hearing and pronouncement. At the religious trials before the Jewish leaders, they pronounced Jesus guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God. However, long before Jesus made that claim, the Jewish leaders wanted him crucified. They made it look like that at his trial he did something that forced their hand and forced them into declaring him guilty of something that is worthy of death. But the truth is they had wanted him dead for a long time. Long before Jesus made that claim, they wanted him crucified. However, they didn't have the authority to carry it out. They didn't have the authority to carry out capital punishment, so they knew that they must get it accomplished in the Roman courts. But they had another problem. They knew the Romans would not agree with killing Jesus because of blasphemy. The Romans couldn't have cared less about Jewish blasphemy. That was irrelevant to them. That was just some Jewish issue. So when the Jews shipped Jesus to Pilate, they changed the charge to treason. They told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews and that he was making that claim so he could subvert Roman rule, so he could undermine stability in the region. That's why Pilate began his questioning of Jesus the way he did here in verse 2. It tells us, this verse tells us, Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pilate wants to know. Is this charge of treason that they have placed against you accurate? Are you trying to stir things up, claiming to be the king of the Jews so you can lead a revolt against Rome? This is the beginning of the three Roman civil trials Jesus would go through. It is obvious as you read through this passage that Mark wants to emphasize the fact that the Jewish leaders were trying to railroad the process through to make it happen. And to make it happen as quickly as they could make it happen. They didn't take Jesus to Pilate for a trial. They didn't really want a trial. They wanted a verdict, a verdict of death, death by crucifixion. And they figured it would be easy to obtain because it was customary for the Roman governor to be in Jerusalem during the Passover in case there were any problems. He usually resided out at the Roman headquarters, Caesarea by the Sea. But he would always make his way from Caesarea by the Sea up to Jerusalem and be there for the Passover holiday because there were so many nationalistic themes with the Passover holiday, and he was worried about riots and, and other types of things. So they knew he was in town. They knew he was there. The Roman governor was there to stomp out any potential riots or uproar among the people. So in their minds, this is the way it worked. Pilate was available, and they assumed he would accommodate them, especially since they were saying, Pilate, we know you're here to stomp out any rebellion, and this guy's trying to stir up rebellion. So just give the decree. Tell, him to be, tell the soldiers to crucify him. They were coming to Pilate to have their decision rubber stamped. But Pilate was not so sure that he was going to cooperate with them. The gospel accounts make it clear that there was a power struggle going on between Pilate and the Jewish leaders at the expense of Jesus. 
to really appreciate this struggle, you have to understand what had happened for years prior to this time. None of this, none of this information is recorded in the gospel accounts because the gospel writers know that everybody to whom they're writing already knew this stuff. But we don't know it if we don't know the history behind it. So here's some of the background. On Pilate's first trip to Jerusalem as procurator, he marched into the city with Roman emblems of the reigning emperor mounted on poles. And this offended the Jews because they considered it idolatry. Now remember, this is his first trip to Jerusalem as procurator. So the Jews asked Pilate to remove them, but he refused. And when he left Jerusalem to return to his headquarters at Caesarea by the sea, a huge mob of Jews followed him all the way there, complaining about the idols. They followed him all the way to Caesarea, and for five days, they hassled him over the issue. Finally, he got so fed up with it that he asked them to meet him in the amphitheater that was there in the city. When they were all assembled, he surrounded them with his army and threatened to kill them if they didn't quit hassling him. Well, you know what they did? They called his bluff by basically saying, go ahead, we dare you. What could he do? He couldn't kill unarmed men because Rome would have never accepted his explanation. So he began his time in office as a defeated man. And you better believe he never forgot it. And the Jews never let him forget it. Then years later, when Jerusalem was having trouble with their water supply, he decided to build an aqueduct, but he didn't have any money. Rome wouldn't give him any money. So he robbed the temple treasury. And as you can imagine, this started a riot. So he, he instructed his soldiers to dress in plain clothes and mingle in the crowd with concealed weapons. Then on a certain signal, the soldiers began to stab and beat the rioters until the uproar was squelched. Well, as you can imagine, the Jewish leadership reported this back to Rome, and that didn't sit very well with Rome. On another occasion, Pilate decided to hang a bunch of shields around the city of Jerusalem. This infuriated the Jews because the Roman shields had the name of Tiberius the emperor inscribed on them. The Jews felt this was idolatry. Idolatry in their city, their capital city. So they asked Pilate to take the shields down, but he refused. So the Jewish leadership sent a message to the Caesar asking him to order Pilate to remove the shields, and the Caesar did. So the Jews won another battle, power struggle with Pilate. This kind of thing had gone on repeatedly. So you can have some insight into this power struggle that's going on in these verses. And not only in these verses, every gospel writer makes this clear, that there's this power struggle going on between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. Pilate was about to play a political game with the Jewish leaders with the life of Jesus as the prize. It is here in these verses that we see the condemnation of Jesus, but we see the damnation of Pilate. We also see the hatred of the Jews, the fear of Pilate, and the majestic calm of Jesus. 
Here's one way to look at this trial, this, this scene in all the Gospels. Pilate was afraid of the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership was afraid of Jesus, and Jesus wasn't afraid of anyone. That's what's going on here. So when Pilate asked Jesus here in verse 2 if he were the king of the Jews, Jesus responded in the affirmative. He answered and said to him, It is as you say. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. So he had no hesitancy stating such. Verse 3, And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Understand that the picture that is painted for us in all the gospel accounts is that this was no private trial with witnesses summoned in an orderly manner. This was a mob scene. The Jewish leaders were throwing out accusations right and left, even though there was no accuracy in their accusations. Verse 4, Then Pilate asked Jesus again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. Pilate wanted to get some kind of response from Jesus because Pilate wanted to have more information to go on in his internal deliberations. Verse 5 tells us, But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Jesus wasn't there to defend himself. He knew the charges were baseless, but his silence said more than any counterpoints he could have set forth. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied that this would be the way the Messiah would respond. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For those Jewish people who know their scriptures, this is another confirmation that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Pilate even marveled at the silence of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, between verses 5 and 6, where we're at right now in the story, Jesus is shipped off to Herod Antipas. That is recorded for us in Luke 23, verses 8 through 12. After Herod had questioned Jesus at great length, he put the ball back in Pilate's court. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, and at that point, Pilate knew he had a problem. He thought he had gotten rid of his problem by shipping Jesus off to Herod. He said, oh, he's from Herod's jurisdiction. I'll just wash my hands of this and ship him off to Herod. But when Herod sent Jesus back, Pilate was stuck. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty of anything that warranted crucifixion. But he also knew that's exactly what the Jewish leaders wanted. And remember how many times they had won in battles with him by going back to Rome. He didn't want to grant their wish because he didn't want to give in to them and lose another go-around. And he may have also had problems with the utter injustice of the situation. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty. Now, we don't know all that was going through his heart and mind, but we do know 
that he thought of a plan that would get Jesus released. Verse 6 tells us about it. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. As Mark tells us here, this had become a custom for Pilate. Because the Jewish people and the leaders didn't like him, Pilate tried to gain some popularity with them by releasing a Jewish prisoner once a year at the Passover season. He figured that this was something he could do every year to sort of gain himself some brownie points with the people. And from what we read here, it seems that he thought that there might be enough people in the crowd who liked Jesus and would want to see Jesus released. He thought there would be enough people out there that say, yes, and release Jesus. That's why he brought up the idea of giving the crowd that option. Verse 7 tells us, And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels, that had committed murder in the rebellion. Because Barabbas was a robber and a murderer, Pilate probably assumed that if given a choice, the crowd would choose to release Jesus and not someone with the character of Barabbas. Verse 8, Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? At first glance, this might seem like a good thought on Pilate's part to get Jesus released. But in reality, this was a great injustice to Jesus because this action was only taken with condemned criminals. So in doing this, Pilate was placing Jesus in the category of a condemned criminal. This is the second major injustice done by Pilate to Jesus. The first one was when he sent Jesus to Herod instead of releasing him. And now he bargains with the Jewish leaders by placing Jesus in the category of a condemned criminal and proposing his release as a political favor. Pilate was sure the crowd would go for Jesus. Because think about it. Just a few days earlier, they had been crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, as Jesus rode on the colt into Jerusalem. So Pilate was sure the crowd would want Jesus released, but Pilate failed to re realize the fickleness of a crowd. Verse 10 tells us, For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. In other words, Pilate knew that the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus killed because they were envious of what had happened a few days earlier in the triumphal entry when Jesus was lauded as king. He knew that. He knew the Jewish people, how they thought and how they reasoned. Hey, the, the leaders are envious because everybody was clamoring for Jesus. So Pilate assumed that there would be enough people in the crowd to override what the Jewish leaders wanted. He thought the crowd would rise up and call for the release of Jesus. But verse 11 tells us, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. This is why the crowd didn't cry out for the release of Jesus. It's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that they would have done that, but the Jewish leaders 
convince them to call for the release of Barabbas. We don't know how the leaders persuaded the crowd. Maybe they threatened the people. Or maybe they coerced the people. Or maybe they intimidated the people. Or maybe they bribed the people. If they were, if they were willing to unjustly murder the sinless Son of God, then there was nothing they were unwilling to do to get it done. However they did it, they convinced the people to call for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. You know, people can be so fickle. People can change so suddenly. It is amazing. This is something you learn as a pastor. You can be the most popular man in the world one day and the worst pastor in the world the next. It just changes overnight. You'll have people say, oh, pastor, we love the church. We love the messages. We love the stance the church takes on things. And then the next thing you know, they get mad at something, leave the church. It happens so often, it's no longer even a surprise. People can be so fickle. That's what happened to Jesus in the last week of his life. Just a few days earlier, Jesus was hailed as king by the crowd But because he didn't lead a revolt and set up the kingdom and overturn Roman rule, the people turned against him. Barabbas was now the people's choice. The people chose a murderer, an insurrectionist, and a bandit over Jesus. Bandits would hang out on the steep road from Jerusalem to Jericho and sabotage people as they traveled unsuspecting people traveling that road. That was Barabbas. His name, by the way, literally means son of the father. How ironic that a pseudo son of the father was released, but the real son of the father was crucified. My guess is that Pilate was dumbfounded by the response of the crowd. This is probably the last thing he expected. He was certain the crowd would want to release Jesus. He knew what had happened just a few days earlier when they were spreading palm branches and and, and their cloaks and all of that, and everyone's lauding Jesus. He was certain the crowd would want to release Jesus, but they didn't. Lenski adds an interesting comment at this point. He says, quote, Such a man the Jewish nation chose in place of Jesus, yet whom they chose... His they were. By this choice, they murdered Jesus and made themselves true moral brothers of the murderer Barabbas. End quote. Verse 12 says, Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! It's difficult difficult to comprehend this kind of hatred. And this kind of injustice and this kind of lack of compassion for the only person who never did anything wrong to anyone. They were calling for Jesus to be crucified. As you know, crucifixion was a torturous, agonizing, excruciating death. And these people knew that. Yet that's what they were crying out for Pilate to do to Jesus. Pilate knew this was wrong. 
He knew this was wrong. Sure, he didn't want to give in to the Jewish leaders because of spitefulness, because of the power struggle. But you also get the impression that he didn't want to give in because he knew this was wrong. He knew Jesus was innocent. So he threw the ball back into their court. Verse 14, then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. In a variety of ways, and you see this if you'll read all four gospel accounts on the trials before Pilate. In a variety of ways, Pilate repeatedly, not once, not twice, Pilate repeatedly declared that Jesus was innocent. The gospel writers make sure to record that point often because it is such a crucial point for anyone who would later read the story and wonder. Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew it. And he soon realized that it didn't matter to the crowd. Because the end of this verse says that once he asked his question, they cried out all the more, crucify him. That is what the Jewish leaders wanted, and they convinced the crowd to want the same thing. The tide of popular opinion had turned against Jesus. He had done so much good for so many people, but he didn't do everything the people wanted him to do, and he didn't do it in the way they wanted him to do it. As a result, the crowd turned against him. In the words of Luke 19.14, they said, We will not have this man to reign over us. That was their attitude. If he had continued to give them free food and free health care and everything else they wanted, they would have liked him. If he had conformed to their expectations and overthrown Rome or led a revolt against Rome, they would have liked him. If he had told them that they were all good people and not guilty sinners before God, they would have liked him. If he had told them that he had come to prosper them and give them their best life now, they would have liked him. If he had told them that their problem was low self-esteem, low self-image, and not sinful hearts, they would have liked him. But Jesus didn't acquiesce to their preferences. He came to do the Father's will, not the fickle will of all the people. Therefore, they called for his death. Throughout the two trials before Pilate, he made it clear, abundantly clear, that Jesus was not worthy of death. So Pilate should have released Jesus, but he didn't have the courage to do so. Instead, he was afraid of the response of the Jews. You could say it this way. Pilate was more concerned about being popular with people than he was about being true to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a graphic picture that is of so many people today. Most people are more concerned with what others think of them, their reputation around others, than they are with being true to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As you well know from the other gospel accounts, Mark doesn't mention this right here at this point, but Pilate tried to wash his hands. Remember? He washed his hands. I'm not guilty of the blood of this man. He tried to wash his hands of Jesus, but he really wasn't able to do so. In a variety of ways, people today try to wash their hands of Jesus, but they aren't really able to do so. As Pilate said, Jesus was innocent, he was just, he was righteous, and he has to be reckoned with by you and by me and by everyone else. Sometimes the question is asked, who is responsible for the unjust death of Jesus? You may remember that this became a big issue a few years ago when Mel Gibson came out with his famous movie on the passion of Christ. And there was originally in the script a line in it that's out of the Bible where the Jewish leadership said, His blood be upon us and our children. And so that was in the script, but the Jewish community was so outraged over that line being in the movie, they put pressure on Gibson and he pulled it out. And I can understand why the Jewish people do something like that because that kind of thing has been used countless times down through the centuries to justify the treatment of Jewish people that is unspeakable. So the question is often asked, who is responsible for the unjust death of Jesus? Here's the answer. The Jews are. The Romans are. You are, and I am. His blood is on all of us. We are responsible for his death because ultimately the Jewish leaders didn't put him on the cross. Pilate didn't put him on the cross. The Roman soldiers didn't put him on the cross. Our sin put him on the cross. So even though there were various attempts to avoid responsibility and avoid culpability, we're all to blame. I see in this story a vivid truth. It is this. You can't just pass Jesus off and hope he goes away. You, you can't just pass Jesus off and hope that he goes away. It doesn't work that way. If you think you can pass Jesus off and forget about him, you're wrong because sooner or later you will have to face him again, either in this life or on Judgment Day. Think about this irony, this turn of events. The day will come when the tables will be turned and these very people we're reading about in this story will stand before Jesus to be judged. Pilate will be there. The Jewish leaders will be there. The people in the crowd will be there. You see, sooner or later, you have to face Jesus, either in this life or on Judgment Day. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to be like Pilate? Or are you going to bow and surrender at the foot of the cross and claim Jesus as your king? The decision is yours, and it has eternal consequences. Let's bow together as we close this morning.
as you bow your head and close your eyes, think about the question that Pilate asked. What then shall I do with Jesus? That is the question that faces you and me and every person in existence. What then shall I do with Jesus? What have you done? Are you like the people in the crowd who liked Jesus when it looked as if he would do what they wanted, but then because they were fickle, they didn't get what they wanted and they turned against him? Is that you? Or are you like Pilate, trying to wash your hands of Jesus and just not take a stand because of what it may cost you? Or like the Jewish leaders who were envious of the attention that Jesus had received during the triumphal entry? What have you done with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? The only proper response is to claim him as your king. To acknowledge, not with mere mental assent, but to volitionally acknowledge him as your king. To yield to him, surrender to him, bow to him as your king. And Father, our prayer would be that every, every person here in this room would do that. That every one of us would bow before Jesus as king and acknowledge him as king of kings and Lord of lords. But in all likelihood, in a crowd this size, there are those who have not been willing to do that, who are unwilling to do that. Maybe they're like Pilate, or maybe like the people in the crowd, or maybe like the Jewish leadership. Whatever category they happen to be in, they, they have refused to yield to Jesus. May your Holy Spirit work and do whatever it takes to cause them to release their clenched fists and open in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.